This is Eric Larson, and I've drawn every Spider-Man story that you've ever loved. And you're listening to The Amazing Spider Talk. Too many who know the angles, uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle I'm Dapper Dan Gavazdin, and I'm the founder and editor of AmazingSpiderTalk.com, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, and I want to be sure to say this, I'm including the annuals. And I'm the mischievous Mark Chinacchio, founder of the Chasing Amazing blog and author of 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die, and I also own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, but frankly, Dan, the annuals, they don't count. Well, anyway... Thanks for joining us for a special Amazing Friends episode of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. We hope you enjoy this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between two fans and a creator as we look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture. Yes, and if you want to learn everything that we know about Spidey, why not start by subscribing to our show all the way back to the very first season? And you can do that by going over to iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, or your podcast player of choice. We're pretty much everywhere. We'd love to have you along for our journey through Spidey's past, present, and future. So just head on over to AmazingSpiderTalk.com for all the details about where to subscribe. Yes, in today's episode, Dan, I'm very excited about this. Not that I'm not always excited about our content, but today... We are being joined by artist Eric Larson, who penciled Amazing Spider-Man, roughly starting around issue Amazing Spider-Man number 327 to about 350. Uh, During that time, he brought his unique style to the book, and he followed up his friend and collaborator, Todd McFarlane. He would then succeed McFarlane again on the adjectiveless Spider-Man title uh, for his Return of the Sinister Six, which was issues 18 through 23. Larson helped to distinctly change the style of the Web Slingers books that uh, we still see reflected today. And then, of course, he uh, left Marvel to form Image Comics and the Image Revolution, uh, where he started uh, his own series, Savage Dragon, which still runs today with uh, Larson at the Creative Helm, uh, where he won an Inkwell Award for his work in 2017. But most surprisingly, Dan, then kind of our, our outlet to getting Eric on the show, it was recently announced that he would be returning to Marvel this September alongside Mark Bagley and Jerry Conway for a special Marvel 80th anniversary one-shot called Amazing Spider-Man Going Big. Mark, we've been so excited about getting Eric on this show ever since we lined this up, so I don't want to delay any longer. You guys have to listen to this great interview that we did with Eric. Well, now let's meet one of our amazing spider friends, the kind of guy I go to other friends who recommend find out about the things they created. You'll love them so much that you wish you but you're just friends, they're an amazing friend, a friend, a friend, a friend, they're an amazing friend. Well, welcome back, everyone. Uh, Mark and I are now joined by none other than Eric Larson. Uh, Eric, thank you for joining us on The Amazing Spider Talk. Uh, it's great to be here. 
just to get started with everything, I guess I'm curious, uh, what were some of the comics that got you hooked on the medium itself? My dad bought comics when he was a kid. So when, when I was growing up, we had a lot of his comic books around the house. And he was around during the Golden Age. So we kind of grew up with with all his old stuff like Captain Marvel Adventures and just various comics that he picked up back in the day. He read comics as a little kid, and as he got older, comics matured. And so when EC Comics started publishing their stuff, he was growing up, and that was prime stuff for him. So he had all that stuff. And then when EC Comics went out of business, that's when his comic book collection stopped and his Playboy collection kicked in. (laughs) (laughs) A a natural evolution there, right? (laughs) So that's how that worked. So then uh, when it came to me just buying my own comics, my gateway drug was Incredible Hulk 156. I'm not really sure how I stumbled on that, but that was like, we just had like a couple random early comics. When uh, DC brought back Captain Marvel, my dad bought that because it was like, all right, he's back. So he, he, he was there for that. And then I had gotten just a couple things. And then uh, my family had moved down to California at one point and it was like, we we kind of just moved into the woods essentially we bought this piece of land and so didn't have any direct neighbors around us and sort of at that point it was like i need something so i started getting more and more into comics at that point and consumed whatever i could get my hands on did that kind of solitary nature in this kind of cabin in the woods start your kind of like drawing to keep you busy kind of thing I did a lot of that. I was doing that a lot of that anyway, because that was just something that I did growing up. I had an older brother and uh, two younger sisters, so there was them to bounce off of, and then my own kind of comic book stuff. Actually, my brother ended up getting a bunch of Hulk comics from some kid at school, and he traded them to me for doing the dishes for a couple of weeks. And I was like, okay, I'm totally down with this trade. <laughs> Sounds like a fair deal. Yeah, yeah right? it was awesome. I was like, I'll do that gladly. <laughs> now, do you remember at any point when you got introduced to Spider-Man through this? Was it through the Hulk or, or through anything like that? Or, I mean, I'm just kind of curious how... You kind of got brought I'm to that not, character. Not really sure. Uh, my my dad tells me that that Steve Ditko Spider Man poster, that really huge one, that that I a friend of his had given me get, given me one of those real early on. I don't remember that at all, but apparently it was in my life and was a thing when I was fairly small. It just once I started getting comics around nineteen seventy. 73 74 around there it just it was one of them so i when i when i got hooked i got hooked hard and i was buying kind of everything i could get my hands on and i was always more of a marvel guy than a dc guy i'd get some dc books but it was never like i love this stuff it was like all right well i guess they don't 
<laughs> I got I got to get something. I came all the way to this store. I'm not going to come out of here empty-handed. Was it the Ross Andrew artwork that kind of drew you into Spider-Man? Um, not not especially. I was. It was just. It was a comic book, and I was a kid who loved comic books. If it had been somebody else drawing it, I would just. I'd be as into it as as Ross. I wasn't like a huge Ross Andrew guy, and like I don't know even what he did after that, but I didn't follow him to the next book or or whatever. Were there any artists that you found yourself following at that stage? And, you know, kind well, of like when you, Herb, when you start recognizing. He was the Hulk guy. So he was he was my key key dude initially. And then it expanded out from there. Jack Kirby was over at DC doing kind of wrapping up his tenure on, on the stuff over there. So I got introduced to him via uh, Commandy, the last boy on Earth. And and Mr. Miracle, whatever else was still chugging along at that point. And that so that became a big guy. And then I got into Gil Kane. And then Gil Kane led me down just all kinds of paths because he had done numerous things here and there, including Spider-Man. I I really loved his Spider-Man stuff. And then uh you know, once and once I was into that, it was like, all right. There's reprints of stuff, so let me just chase down whatever I can get all over the place. And and once I was like, oh, clearly Ditko was the, the, the driving force of this book. And kind of everybody's been just coasting on his fumes for a long time. Like, he he set up everything cool about Spider-Man, and pretty much everybody after that was was just kind of aping him to a degree. You're not the first artist I've heard who's talked highly about Gil Kane. I, I love Gil's work, but like I, I never think of him as like kind of at the forefront of artists. I'm just kind of curious as an artist, what, what is it about Gil Kane's stuff that really drove, like really well, kind of makes you passionate? He, uh, he was the guy in the 70s. He was doing like all, almost every Marvel cover at one point. Mm. And so people just liked the, the power and uh, and he was also really had a, this grasp of anatomy that that few artists had at that point. So it's it's just like his stuff was more kinetic and mm-hmm. and alive than a lot of other people's stuff. Whose whose work at that time was somewhat stayed. And then the guys who Gil influenced, like uh, Frank Miller, became huge too. So there's this thing where there was like these guys would influence the next guy and then the next guy would come from that and you kind of go okay well this artist i like because he's got pieces of neil adams and jack kirby and i like this guy because he's got pieces of you know whatever will eisner and and gil kane and you've got to work with a bunch of these legendary creators over your varied career i mean even uh, Kirby at one point did you work with Kirby at one point yeah I worked with I worked with Jack just a little on uh that Phantom Force book over at over at Image that that was just like stuff that was kicking around that was sitting in a drawer that that never had gotten published and there was like oh you've got that well we could put that to work got to ink Steve Ditko on a human torch story that ran in Marvel Comics Presents that was pretty neat my first Marvel gig was actually scripted by Stan Lee, so 
that's all right too. You know, I'd be able to <laughs> <laughs> look at all these guys I get to work with. This is cool. Not a bad place to start. You know, yeah, and a lot of guys, you you go, I I, I want to have this. I want to work with this guy. You know, I worked. With, I had Herb Trimpey draw a story in Savage Dragon at one point, and so I penciled a story that he inked, and he penciled a story that I inked, and that was fun to be able to to do that. And Herb's a, Herb's a super great guy and and there's just things along the way where you get to meet folks that you never thought you'd be hanging out with and having long conversations with and stuff like that and, and just like oh this is awesome oh it's great we've been you know we checked out obviously your uh bibliography i guess you could say your your your, your history here and it looks like you actually got your start on Spider-Man in issue. Uh, it was Amazing Spider-Man number two eighty-seven. It was kind of like a, a random fill-in of pencils that you did. And I'm just kind of curious how did how did that come about? Did, like, what, what, what you do you recall how you got attached to that specific issue? Uh, they needed somebody, and they called me. And I mean, I at at an early point there, I was trying to get whatever work I could get wherever the hell I could get it. So whenever I would do a job for anybody that was published, I would make photocopies of, of everything I had done on it and then send it off to various editors. Really, that was the, the way to, to work yourself up the food chain there. And so I sent stuff off probably to Jim Salakra. So he had gotten my work and I was doing... Um, he and agents over at Eclipse Comics at the time, but they just needed a warm body on that. Whoever was was working on it had kind of left abruptly, I think, and so they were they were kind of in a okay. We we need whoever we can get. So they had Alan Kupperberg had done uh, the the issue before me and the issue after me, and I guess they were just like okay, let's try this kid out and see how yeah. this works. There was a lot of abrupt stuff going on in that book at that time. <laughs> yeah, it's a real mess, and it and it's too bad because they had some stories that were going somewhere, and they didn't really get to pay off in the way that they should have. You know, that whole hobgoblin thing was set up as the this mystery and who is it behind the mask, and the guy who created that character didn't get to pay it off, and the guy who followed him on the book didn't get to pay it off so ultimately it, it went to uh jim owsley to tell, tell us all who it was and by that point i don't know if he just didn't want to have it be the person who it originally was supposed to be or if he was uh if, if he never knew or what but it was kind of a mess it <laughs> really didn't didn't pay off in a satisfactorily satisfactory way and and I'm just kind of like, oh, this this sucks. This is kind of where where this stuff can fall apart. Where where creators, you, when you don't own it and you can't fully control it, and other people get involved, you can just it can be frustrating. Where you, you're setting things up and then and then not being able to to pay it off. Oh well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, years later, Roger Stern did get to do a story where he finally did reveal who that character was supposed to be but it was like man this is way way late in the game and were, i don't know 
anybody's paying attention at that point. We're tremendously huge fans of like the drama behind that story. Mark, (laughs) Mark considers himself a bit of a hobgoblin historian. So uh, hearing you talk about this is bringing a smile to our faces. (laughs) We we finally got to interview Christopher Priest about it last summer after, you know, hounding him for years and years. And, you know, during that interview, he was like, yeah, I don't, you know, I, I, I didn't have any say in who was Hobgoblin. We're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? You were the uh, editor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, it was, I guess it was Roger Stern had set it up. So he would be the guy to talk to about that. Like how, how this whole thing yeah, goes yeah. south. It was a wild time. Uh, so your first major kind of ongoing run at Marvel seems to be the kind of Marvel Comics Presents, which you mentioned earlier. In issues 48 to 50, you got to do that Spider-Man Wolverine story. Can you, uh-huh. can you tell us about working on those issues and whether they were kind of directly responsible, maybe along with good timing, for you getting the gig on Amazing Spider-Man? Those actually came after, uh, after I was already on Amazing. Oh, my yeah. mistake. In terms of my chronology there, I uh, my first regular gig was uh, The Punisher. And then I went from The Punisher to doing Marvel Comics Presents. And we did a uh, an Excalibur serial. And that was the job that got me uh, Spider-Man. So then went by the time... Then I got rolling on, on Amazing Spider-Man. And I had already always been kind of in touch with uh, Terry Cavanaugh, who is the Marvel Comics Presents guy. And so at some point there, I don't know if, if, he, if he had offered it or I pitched it to him or something, but I did pitch him about doing a, a three-part story there. And there were points in time during your run where Amazing Spider-Man was coming out like every other week. Adding on Marvel Comics Presents, I, I have to imagine that it was a bit of a crunch for you. Yeah, you just did it. But I was young and full of energy, you know? I didn't know any better. (laughs) You know, and and all my heroes were guys who did just tons of work. So Jack Kirby was doing three books, and and Steve Ditko had done a book and a half, and he was inking his own stuff. So I figured, I'm just penciling. I'm not inking this stuff at that point. So it goes fairly quickly, just depending on how much of a head of esteem I can get and, and stuff like that. But there was some times there where I was having to churn out issues in eight days, something like that. Wow. Just like, wow. <laughs> you know, it's like, here, here we go. There's that time too, around 2000, a little bit before that, where I did a short run on Amazing Spider-Man at the same time that I was doing a short run on Thor at the same time that I was still on Savage Dragon. So that was a point where I was doing three books a month. You just do it, like you said, you right? Just do it. No, it's it's you look at it as like, oh, I got this challenge. Can I do this? Is it possible? I'm gonna, I'm going for it, man. <laughs> and it's like you can, you can do it if you don't, if you don't screw up and and get get distracted by other stuff, you know. And it's it's super easy to get distracted by other stuff. It's like, oh, it's all so fun. You can't do that. You got to be like, no, no, no. Here, I am, <laughs> I am the prize here, man. Focus. Oh, in, in the days before Twitter, where people weren't so easily distracted. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and you didn't have games on your phone because you didn't 
your phone was just a phone. It couldn't do anything else. All I can do is is work. I, I can't be distracted by all this other stuff. And, you know, I mean, a lot of this, we didn't have, I didn't have a computer that I could be screwing off on and, and doing this other stuff. It just, it wasn't a thing. I couldn't do it if I wanted to. I don't know which is the actual dystopian hellscape here, not having a computer or, or what we're in now, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know that it helps, really. Yeah. Because I don't know, ultimately, it's like, oh, it's awesome. I can communicate with my favorite artist online and follow them on Facebook or whatever. At the same time, it's like they're not getting their work done because they're being distracted by all this other stuff. And that's not helping. And I think a lot of it, too, is is you go, oh, I know my I know this artist now and I really don't like him. You know, I really don't want to know <laughs> this thing about him that, you know, you didn't used to know before. You didn't know what political affiliation this guy had or that guy had or what his beliefs are or, or anything else. And there, there ends up suddenly there's all this stuff that wasn't there before that kind of divides people up where you didn't use that that wasn't a, that didn't enter into it you just didn't know sometimes you could get an idea from their work where you know suddenly spider-man's goes off on some rant about about guns or or whatever it's like okay i get an idea what's going on here those are few and far between that you would have those kind of ranty comic books for the most part you just wouldn't know what was going on in terms of expression, you know, back to the, the book itself, Todd McFarlane, you know, had come onto the book just before you and kind of blew the doors open in regards to how Spider-Man could be presented within a comic. I mean, like he took, obviously he took a lot of liberties with, you know, updating the character and, and presenting him in a different way. I'm curious how that kind of freedom of expression influenced your approach to drawing Spider-Man. I mean, I knew there were certain aspects that I needed to continue because I'm, you know, following in his footsteps. So I'm sitting there like, all right, well, I'm not going to suddenly do a tiny-eyed Spider-Man and stuff like that. I had drawn the fat webbing when I did my fill-in issue early on anyway. He kind of, Todd kind of took it from Michael Golden and I had kind of taken that from Michael Golden. And so we all kind of, there was a few artists who had who had looked at what what Michael had done, and he had just done like a Marvel fanfare. So there was there wasn't a lot of Spider Man that he had done, but there was enough that a bunch of us could kind of look at it and go, "Oh, I want to do that one. That, that's a cool Spider Man." You know, when Arthur Adams did Spider Man in in uh, Longshot, he was clearly looking at what. Michael Golden had done. And so I think Todd was looking at those going, there's this Spider-Man that everybody loves that isn't in the Spider-Man book. Let's give readers that on a regular basis. And they responded to it. Every time I talk to an artist from who was doing like prominent work in the 90s, so many of them refer back to Michael Golden as the kind of, you know, of, I hate to say it's a golden child, but like <laughs> the thing, yeah. the, the thing to kind of look at, like everybody just, you know, his stuff is so cool. Like it, it really I, I, is on the, on the lips or I guess uh, of everybody from that era, uh, which it's, it's here. It's cool to hear you say that as well. <laughs> well, the thing is that, that he is never a guy who had done real cool long run on, on much of anything. So I think, in a in a lot of ways, the fans missed out on him 
because he was doing two issues over here and two issues over there and did a few covers and did a little of this and that. And so if you weren't really paying attention, you might not necessarily even know who in the world he was, but definitely the, the artists at the time were looking at his work and going, yeah, that's the guy, that one there. I want to do that. Now, at the same time, I mean, as all this like cool new stuff was kind of developing in, in the early 90s, I mean, we've heard a number of creators come on and talk about kind of holding, you know, their work to the standard of, of the the OGs, if you will, Dicko and Ramita, especially as it comes to the Spider-Man. And I'm just kind of curious from your end, you know, how much emphasis do you place on kind of being like a steward of that original, the originating idea? And, and then from there, what kind of liberties do you feel free from take, you know, to take and in your interpretation of the character? Well, certainly I was looking at that stuff a lot. You can look at my run and see how Flash Thompson had gone from basically having the, the Steve Rogers part in his hair and every, sort of everybody ended up kind of having that, that, that look. Whereas Ditko had given him curly hair. So I kind of looked at him and go, well, how did Ditko do him? And so I gave him back that. And same thing with a lot of the other characters that was on the book. I kind of looked and said, these characters have gotten to be really bland over the over the years because successive artists would just look at the previous guy and nobody was looking back and going, well, what's he supposed to look like? And so that was part of, of me doing it was going, all right, well, what's Doc Ock look like? Let me find how Ditko's Doc Ock was. Let me find what Ditko's uh, Vulture looked like. Let me see, you know, when Kingpin first showed up, well, what the hell did he show, look like? You know, my initial Kingpin, if you look at the real early one, I'd, I would just draw him like this big fat ball. And then, uh, <laughs> and then later on, it was like, no, I got to, it's more, he's got the more prominent shoulders he's got the thicker eyebrows and, and just kind of trying to emulate that look and bring that to it. Like, what did, what did Ramita do and how do I make that and how do I incorporate that into it? So I definitely was keeping those guys in mind when I'm sitting here doing the work. And mostly you're trying to make it somewhat consistent that if you were reading it from the beginning till now that you could go, okay, it's, it's evolved somewhat, but I can still tell that Mary Jane is the same person. And I think that gets lost sometimes that people will just go, Oh, she's just a pretty girl. And as long as her hair is colored red, we're good to go. It's, it's good to look at the stuff that's come before and go, no, no, she's got dimples in her, in her cheeks and she's got a cleft in her chin and she's got, these kind of arched eyebrows that that other characters don't have. And those are defining characteristics that make it so that if I'm just seeing her face and I'm not even seeing her hair, there you go, oh, that's definitely Mary Jane. That's not uh, some other character. And that's part of it is just looking around and seeing what what is it that makes this character this character and continue doing that and continue using that and build upon that and do something cool with it. Because I think that the tendency is to lose a lot of that stuff or to try and make it your own. But I kind of try and think of it as if we were all drawing a caricature of Barack Obama, you'd, everybody's version of him is still going to lead you to go, well, I can clearly tell you're all drawing the same guy. 
Whereas I think a lot of times with comic books and, and doing these characters that you can't even tell that you're drawing, trying to draw the same guy other than, okay, he's got a big red S on his chest. I'm guessing that's Superman. Mm-hmm. All the features get sanded away with time. Is yeah. yeah. Everybody's like, I want to make this my own. It's like, well, you wouldn't go, my Barack Obama's fat. You'd go, <laughs> you'd go, this is because he's not a fat dude. You know? <laughs> so to take huge liberties with a lot of these guys seems a little weird. You know, it's like Spider-Man's kind of this a scrawny guy. If you're making him this really big, bulky guy, that's kind of not the dude, you know, that's not the way that guy is. So if you're basing, you know, your style of these characters off of kind of these originating designs at its bare essence, how would you describe the Eric Larson style? Like, how do you sell your artwork as like, what do you, what are you bringing to it in your own particular way? <laughs> <laughs> what What is your brand? If you will. I mean, there's still going to be stuff where, you know, every supporting character is going to be trying to make those guys look interesting. If it's just some some guy that's walking down the street, there's still going to be a level of detail that I'm putting into stuff. There's still going to be basic compositional things that other artists aren't bringing to the table. And you're sitting there going, I'm drawing a panel. My approach to drawing a panel is quite different from other artists' approach to drawing a basic panel that just the storytelling and the beats are, are a defining thing in and of themselves. And then you just go, okay, well, he draws debris different from the way this other guy draws debris. And a lot of that stuff, it doesn't, it, it's like it doesn't matter really that much, but it still defines your look as opposed to somebody else's look. I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm not quite sure how to answer that question. It, it's a hard thing to verbalize, you know, but like we, we all can look at various artist styles and immediately pick it out. Right. Like I, I can pick out your style from like a mile away, but I, I, yeah, I, I don't know if I could describe it. I guess I, that's why I was curious to ask. Yeah. You. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, a lot of this stuff that I do, it has a kind of cartoony quality to it in it. A lot of like my buildings are somewhat abstract. They're not necessarily, well, that's a photorealistic thing that you're doing there. And then I'm not trying to do realism and failing miserably. I'm trying, <laughs> trying to do, bring something else to it, you know? Works for me. Oh, <laughs> well, we stuff. like it, certainly. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Not, not, not like, too, you know, kind of adjacent to that point, you know, and you were kind of touching upon this earlier with our with the Dicko Ramita question. But like with the villains that you've done over the years, especially like the more established, famous villains like Doc Ock and Vulture. I mean, you've you know, it's funny, like as you're describing the original ideas for these characters, like Doc Ock, for example, like I know you did the thing with the white suit. And I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. His first few appearances, he's in like that white lab coat. I can see where where you got your ideas and kind of went from there. But then his his arms were so much more kind of like crazy and out of control and dynamic under your stewardship. And like, you know, other villains as well. Like when you think of like the, the sinister six stories that you did, and I'm just kind of curious again, like how did you balance trying to honor the past while still just doing cool stuff that, you know, would kind of push the envelope with, with contemporary fans. Well, you, you do look at what came before and go, well, I, I'm, this has got to be 
consistent to a degree with what's come before. But at the same time, you're like, okay, but I want to I want to crank this up to 11. How can I make this both consistent and cooler? And so you go, okay, well, well, Doc Ock, he's he never looked. You don't want to put an overweight dude in tights. It's just bad. (laughs) So uh, I was actually sharing a studio with with a few other guys at one point and one of the guys in my studio pete mcdonald was uh doing work on uh color forms you remember color forms there were oh, yeah. rubbery characters that you would put on this background he had done the dick tracy color forms and yep. so they had he had all these character sheets of what all the dick tracy characters look like and they're all in suits and so that's where doc Ock in a suit kind of came from was oh yeah doc Ock's more of a gangster guy than he is a, a super villain and he's gonna look better just wearing a suit and he's gonna look if if he is running around in tights because yeah. you know, that tights look just isn't working for him no <laughs> don't want to see doc Ock in a unitard it's just <laughs> yeah. too much information yeah. right? <laughs> during your time on the book you did a lot of stories with spider-man weather teaming up with or fighting against anti-hero characters. And one of my favorites is your the, the Punisher story that you did. But I'd, I'd heard in another interview you say that you didn't really like feel comfortable working on the Punisher book that you had before Amazing Spider-Man because you felt like it wasn't a great fit for your art. I, I, if I'm Well, mostly because um, the Punisher is fairly grounded in, in realism, and I'm not. When I'm sitting there going, okay, well, he's got to be holding a real gun. And he's going to be riding in a real car. And then when there's a helicopter, it's a real helicopter. And it's just like, God, man, I like dudes who are knocking each other through walls. And <laughs> this guy just doesn't do that. You know, none of that stuff is there. And so it, it just became kind of stifling in a way. Yeah, I wasn't totally into that. And I'm sure that he put, that David probably put a Punisher in there just because I had come off Punisher not that long ago. So it was, oh, I, the fans know you from Punisher, so let's put Punisher and Spider-Man together. Well, um, I like that issue because Punisher, is, it's like an elevated Punisher. Like, it's kind of, I don't know if silly is the right word, but it leans into its genre trappings a little bit more. Like, he's in shadow, and it's got your, like, patented laser blasts and stuff that you're so famous for with all the Kirby dots and stuff. I, I think that that's one of the most stylish-looking issues you worked on, so... Hats off to you. It still registers <laughs> as Punisher to me. Well, cool. This episode wouldn't be possible without the support from our wonderful Patreon subscribers, whose patronage allows us to assemble the guests we have on the show and do all of our research. If you enjoy the show and want to help us continue while also getting amazing bonus content and additional episodes that we never release publicly, go to our show notes and check out our Patreon page and consider joining our team. So in terms of like some other characters that you designed in your time, you know, there were uh, Solo and Cardiac, which are both kind of like technology weapons-based anti-heroes, kind of similar to Punisher, but I guess a little more elevated and they've obviously, you know, they've played a recurring role in, in comics ever since. So I'm, I'm kind of curious what were some of the, the thoughts that, you know, you applied in, in terms of co-creating these characters, especially Cardiac. I feel like Cardiac really has kind of played a role in Spider-Man, especially throughout the 90s. Yeah, that was a fun character to come up with, really. I mean, it, and it just kind of came from the, the name. 
so that zag line that was on him just just came from you know the, the heartbeat that you see on those monitors. How did Michelini describe the character to you, if, if you remember? I don't recall any description at all other than I knew he, he held a staff at some point, but I didn't know that he held a staff when I drew that cover when he first appeared on because he doesn't have the staff on that first cover. Oh, yeah. I was just, you know, I it's just going by a name. I think he had said that he was he had to be covered from head to foot so we wouldn't, we wouldn't see his identity at all. So I knew I needed to cover him completely so you weren't seeing skin tone or anything like that. Beyond that, I don't I don't recall there being much of any description of him. But I don't have any of those scripts anymore, so or or plots as they were in those days. Sure. Yeah, because I I mean that was back in the day when everybody was doing these these loose plots. You know, you would get something that would be a few pages, four or five pages long, and you would just draw it from that. And it wouldn't have all the dialogue and it wouldn't have a lot of uh, descriptions of much of anything. David's tendency was to just go describe the splash page and then go pages two through 22 and you would just ramble. So there's a <laughs> fair amount of leeway in that. In some cases, even he would just go, you know, pages 14 through 18, fight. And that's it. <laughs> maybe this happens and maybe that happens, but he wasn't super hands-on in terms of whatever, what the characters were doing in every single moment. Is that liberating Is that- to you or, or, uh, or frustrating? Oh, yeah, to you? Yeah. I don't, I don't care. That, that didn't bother me in the, in the least. That was, that was fun. I actually vastly prefer that to full scripts drive me up the wall. Working from those, it's just like, oh my god! <laughs> just let me give me some room for crying out loud. Let me do something. Why am I here? No, no. I mean, like to that point, I'm I'm curious about like your creative dynamic with some of the various writers you work with at Marvel and the role you felt that artists played in that Marvel way, quote unquote, of doing comics uh, during the early part of your career. There, I mean, do you feel that that dynamic is what essentially fueled your move towards forming image and being one of the founding fathers of creator owned comic books. I, I kind of was going towards writing my own stuff. Anyway, I started off doing things that way, going there and, and eventually doing it all myself it was kind of in the cards and I was bit by bit getting there. Anyway, you know, like I had written that Marvel Comics Presents stuff and I was going to write some more and I had put proposals in for various things along the way. I mean, my last Spider-Man stuff that I did before going to uh, Image was that was me writing my own stuff at that point. It was in the cards that that was going to go on. And I wouldn't say that that writers, other writers drove me to it by any stretch, but it was just something that I wanted to do. I was the goal from the beginning was to do everything myself. One of the most popular stories that you worked on during your time with Spider-Man were the uh, Venom stories that kind of bo- nearly bookended your time on the character. You've been often credited with adding Venom's tongue and his oversized jaw to the costume, kind of completing the popular design. Can you speak to your thoughts about Todd's design and, and your particular additions? The, the costume itself came from Zach and Leonardi. I'm not sure exactly who did what in terms of designing that, that initial costume. 
And then I guess Todd was tasked with turning him into a bad guy and, and giving him uh, a, a mouth. <laughs> and then initially he had a really kind of a regular person mouth in his first appearance. It wasn't really that crazy. It was kind of like he even had regular teeth in his very first appearance. And then you go from that to his second appearance and, and he had given him the, the sharper teeth. Before I had drawn him, Todd had done a, uh, a trade paperback cover where he had had Venom's mouth open. I didn't buy the trade paperback because I already had the comic, so I, I didn't need it. But his <laughs> mouth was open and his tongue was visible. And I, since I didn't buy it, all my, my memory takeaway was, oh, Todd's giving him a tongue now. I'm going to give him an even crazier tongue. So I just, <laughs> I just was like, I, I'll just make it even bigger and put more slobber and make it grosser. And then, um, it, and so I had kind of had been crediting Todd with being the guy who gave him the tongue. And it wasn't until years later that I saw that trade paperback again. And, re, and I realized, oh no, he just had his mouth open. That was his standard issue tongue. That wasn't a crazy thing at all. It was just, you could see this little red dot of something in there. There it wasn't anything. And it was like, holy crap, I guess I gave him that. Well, what do you know? <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? Tripping, um, tripping backwards but, into, into a creation. But it was, it was this thing. I, I think, you know, when he did his second appearance, Todd was trying to top himself. And when I did my first one, it was like, okay, well, I want, I need to top Todd. And then when I had him appear again, it's like, all right, well, now I need to top what I did before that. So he just became crazier and more monstrous and, and more outrageous as time went on. And, and that's kind of the way that's worked. And I think probably artists who followed me were like, all right, let me, let me take it even farther than that. But I know David McElhinney in his, in his scripts was like, no, no, you gotta oh, don't make him so monstrous. People like the, the the character beyond the blah blah blah. And he's giving me this spiel. I was like, yeah, screw that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not I, buying it, man. <laughs> I mean, was there something specific to Venom that kind of pushed that that idea of can you top this? I mean, was that like that with other characters for you? I mean, or was there something specific to him that where it was like. No, I got. I got to just push it further. I, I think kind of with with every character, you you did to a degree want to at least keep up with uh, whoever had done it previous, so that you're not the guy who's like, well, his was kind of lame. You know, you want to <laughs> be the guy who's like, oh, did you see the way he drew that guy? That was awesome. Yeah. You know, and that's that's what you want is you wanted that the readers to be enthusiastic about the way you brought drew any of the characters. And then just to be able to top the next guy. So we were kind of always competing with each other and we were competing with whoever had come before on the on the books. It wasn't a matter of simply being consistent with what had come before, but topping what had come before and finding a way to top what had come before. All of your openings for your Venom books have some of the coolest introductions to that character. I'm thinking specifically of like, the ones where he eats the spider that dangles down and it's just his jaw coming out of the shadows and the one where he's like hanging above Spider-Man with his jaw, just hanging halfway down the page, <laughs> you, you know? Well, it, a lot of that just comes from, it's the setup has to be there. So, you know, if, if Michelini hadn't described that, that he was there doing that, 
then I couldn't have drawn that. But at the same time, it's like, I'm going to make whatever you're giving me as cool as I can possibly make it. What was your sense regarding the character at the time and his popularity? Did you expect Venom to be the most popular addition to the Spider-Man mythos that you worked on? I knew he was popular. I thought I thought um, conceptually that I always thought he had a, had a really dumb origin just because it was <laughs> like... I just thought his motivation wasn't wasn't super there. It's like, wait a minute, and it, and it was really convoluted. It's like, so he's a reporter, and then he was following the story, and somebody was confessing to him, but Spider-Man's supposed to be stopping bad guys anyway, and it just seemed like his whole motivation for it was was just kind of dumb. And I I wish that was stronger because as a visual, he's a really strong visual. So to me, as as a reader, my thought was, well, but I, I got to make him a cool visual because conceptually he's dumb. So I got to make it <laughs> that there's got to be something bigger than that to draw people in because I can't de- just depend on the story hook because I didn't think the story hook was strong enough. Now I'm now I'm bagging on people. <laughs> I didn't do that, but well, kind of in a similar vein in terms of like getting bigger and again pushing boundaries a little bit you know the a lot of fans kind of look back on the early mid 90s in comics and and in spider-man specifically it's kind of like the rise of like cheesecake in terms of the female characters especially with like mj uh-huh. and i'm curious like what's 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 your take on this do you feel like you contributed to that did, was oh, yeah. you did? <laughs> i mean like tell me about it yeah go go <laughs> you know it's playing to your audience is going what what do these kids want what do, what do they want what do they respond to what do they like um you know and and the thing is that we were also we were kids making comics for other kids really because i was young you know i was just like 25 or something when i was started to do Spider-Man. i think i was younger than that when i did my, my first fill-in issue i was like 21 or 22 or something when i did that i was really just a kid so when you're working on it you're just you just want to do what you think your audience wants you know, and and they were responding to MJ being whatever she was. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, all right, here you go. I can do that. At times, the editors were like, all right, all right. <laughs> you guys, <laughs> you're, you're kind of taking it too far. That, that did happen, and there were there were times where the in the printed comic, it's like, all right, well, I guess they took that out. <laughs> that's the influence of your father's playboy collection <laughs> but michelini was leaning into it too i mean like his scripts were pretty explicit yeah i mean like characters were always like she comes out and she's wearing a slinky negligee and then she's you know doing this and that it's like all right i know what you're doing <laughs> i'm down for that it was definitely there and and you know it, it worked out all right I think. And then there ended up being, I guess, probably something of a backlash years later. It's like, oh, no, we got a course correct here. We can't be doing that. But whatever. You know, at the, at the time, it seemed fine. It certainly got the attention of a lot of young boys uh, <laughs> at the time. One of the things that, like, looking back on, you know, your work, and I reread all your issues this week just to kind of refresh myself. But one of the things that I thought was my favorite thing rereading these is that, 
all the splash pages that you did in, during this run, like just like all the Dicko era, all the books kind of opened with like a big splash page or kind of like a cold opening kind of moment. Was this a nod to Dicko or was this something that you and like Michelini kind of wanted to add more of into the book? It was a, a nod to Ditko, especially in the uh, Return of the Sinister Six thing. Because in, in the original Sinister Six annual, I'd kind of, you know, looking through that going, well, every character got his day. Every character had a splash that was central to that character. So I got to give Dr. Octopus a cool Dr. Octopus splash where you had Spider-Man all wrapped up in his arms or... Let me do a good electro where he's got <laughs> lightning bolts flying all over the place. And so that part came from me. In terms of the uh, splash pages of, of opening splashes, that was just, just standard operating procedure at the sure. time. It's just the way comics were. But I, I've always liked there being those big splashes or double page spreads or, or whatever that that character, that artist that I loved used to do. Jack Kirby would always do these great spreads. And so I was like, oh, I want to do some of those. But I, I really wasn't able to work much of those into the Spider-Man stuff in terms of like two-page spreads. But I do love them. <laughs> I was able to do more of it later on, actually. Yeah, but. you got that awesome like Nova, you know, splash page. Like yeah. there's a lot of good stuff in those issues. I had, I had some fun. I tried to do what I could with it. Then the Tri Sentinel certainly allows you to do like big, tall panels and things like that. Yeah, yeah. There was some, you know, just just tossing everything at it I could and doing my doing my best. <laughs> that was a long time ago, though. You know? Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. Looking back at it, it's like holy crap, man. This this almost thirty years ago, or or was thirty years ago in some Yeah, cases. just about. Yeah. You know, it's like holy, holy cow! How'd that happen? I'm glad it's still so fresh in your mind, though. We talked to a lot of uh, creators who like don't have a, much of a memory of what they did, but you know, uh, I'm impressed that you, you know, can <laughs> still kind of like grab onto it so much, you know, given the time it's been. Yeah, it's been a bit, but you got to also. I I haven't done a lot of other things because I've had this run on Savage Dragon, which is long, but that's been you know. <laughs> big chunk of of my career has been this one book so when it comes to the other stuff there's not that much other stuff that there is so there's a little bit of okay you collaborated with this guy here and that guy there but for the most part it's just been this one book that's been doing everything so it's easier i think to keep track of it when you haven't done 40 different titles and been jumping from this company to that company and back and forth since you mentioned Savage Dragon, you know, obviously, you know, we got to talk about your role in the the image revolution. And, <laughs> and you know, I mean, it's been talked about ad nauseum, I'm sure. I mean, from your end, I'm just curious what you feel the impact on the industry has been. I mean, what are the what are the positive effects? But also, do, do you feel that there were any negative effects that came out of what you guys ended up doing in comics? I'm not sure what the negatives would be other than we didn't get our act together as quickly as we should have. And we had a lot of stuff that didn't come out when it should have because we couldn't get our acts together. I think that's probably the biggest negative. I mean, in terms of readers, it's, you know, it's nice to be able to depend on 
on stuff and to know that it's going to be there. And, and that's, that can be a problem with, with creator owned stuff. You know that Spider-Man is going to be there year after year after year after year, regardless. But uh, uh, some creator doing his own book, is he going to be here or, or isn't it? You don't know. So that part is, can be frustrating, I think, for readers. At the same time, I think it's really nice that you can have situations where artists can, and writers can pay stuff off and it's one person's vision from start to finish. You know, you, you've got this situation on Spider-Man where it does get kicked from this creator to that creator to that creator. And when you look at Spider-Man's story as a whole, it's very jerky, you know, because it's, it's, yeah. it's gone on now for, you know, 57 years. And it's gone through a lot of different creators over the time. And sometimes Spider-Man is hilarious and sometimes he doesn't tell any jokes at all. And he can look any number of ways and his life can go any number of ways. And even when you, when you look at it, you go, yeah, but how much, how many years in his life have really passed? And it's not a lot, you know, it's like, he's not that old as a character. I mean, what would they say? He's 26, maybe. I think they're like saying right now it's like 28 or something like that. Yeah. Oh my gosh, he's almost as old as Superman. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do you feel there's a different level of investment as a creator when you're working on one of these franchise characters for the big two versus your own creations? Oh, there has to be. There has to be. And also, you know, going into it, that there's this whole list of things that you can't do on, on the book and you can't do with this character. You know, it's like, I can't, if I'm doing Spider-Man, I'm not, I'm not going to be the guy who's going to kill Spider-Man. I'm not going to be the guy who kills Aunt May. I'm not going to be the, the guy who has him lose a like, foot over diabetes or something. You know, like I'm the one who marries him, right? No. You know, I can't have him get married. I can't have him, you know, and, and everything needs to be approved along the line the way, you know, it's like, Oh, I want to give Spider-Man and, uh, I want to give him a new girlfriend and I want to do this. I want to do that. It's like, okay, well, there are people you need to say yes, you know, and then that can get in the way of a lot of things. And, and a lot of my own work is just, I can get in this, this mood and this momentum that, that stuff can have where you're just like, I have an idea today and I'm drawing it today and it's, and it's going out today while I'm still enthusiastic about it. Whereas if I'm doing like, oh, let's do this book at Marvel or DC. Okay, well, I'm going to write a pitch and then it's going to be a week or two before I hear back from it. And then by the time you're actually working on it, it can be, you know, suddenly five weeks. And it's like, do you still have that enthusiasm that you had when you initially had that idea? Maybe, but sometimes you, you really don't. And sometimes you're sitting there and it becomes this real chore where you're just sitting there going, God, I was really interested in doing this six weeks ago. And I really don't have it now. Do you feel like your work on Savage Dragon is in some ways a reaction to the kind of constraints of the Marvel style? 
Yeah, I mean, to to a lot of degrees, it's like I can do whatever I want to, and then you go, oh, "Can I do this? Let me try this and see if this pisses anybody off." And it, yeah, but at the same time, it sometimes does. <laughs> and you can be like, "All right, man, maybe you should have had somebody saying no because you, you went a little bit too far there, buddy." There are pluses and minuses to everything. Yeah. Yeah, there are. And there's there's something too to having to work around some constraints that that you're just sitting there going, huh, how do I do this thing when I can't do this thing? And so it's like I, I need to be more clever to be able to say that that uh Peter Parker got laid without actually saying that Peter Parker got laid. You know, I gotta find some clever euphemism or or way of putting this that you get the idea without actually seeing it because we can't see it. Whereas in, whereas in Savage Dragon, it's like, look at those two. <laughs> oh, God. No one wants to see that. Kind of love. <laughs> get a room. <laughs> How would you uh, describe your relationship with Marvel since you left for Image? I mean, it was a big move, but, you know, it seems like you've kind of kept a pretty amicable relationship over the years uh it depends on who's there and what i've said recently <laughs> because there's, def- there's definitely times where you know you might i might sit in there and go oh my god joe casada is this awesome artist he's so great blah 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 and then he'll do like a, a clunker cover and i'll be like oh man that one wasn't so good and then it's like <laughs> <laughs> and then suddenly I'm, I'm hearing through the grapevine, oh, man, Joe's really pissed at you. It's like, oh, what I, oh yeah, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's like, I think overall they get that I don't mean any harm by, by anything that I say or do. And that at the end of the day, I want them to have as good a comics as they can put out. Because I, I think it's better for the industry, period, if Marvel's good and if, you know, and Image is good and DC is good. You know, the more good comics there are, the more people are, are coming into the stores and the more enthusiasm there is, just the better we all do. I think all the, all the ships rise when, when everything is working together in tandem, you know. And I think one of the things that's kind of hurt the industry over the years is that there doesn't seem to be this thing that we all kind of agree on is, no, this is the awesome one. We all need to be reading this right now. And when those periods of time when we don't have a Dark Knight, we don't have a Watchmen, we don't have a Marbles or something that's really propelling people into the stores, it can kind of seem like, Oh, there's not really much going on, and it's and it's just better for everybody if there's something out there that people are really excited about. Is there a Marvel book right now that you are really excited about? There is not, and I wish there was. Interesting. And there's not a and there's not a DC book. And the thing that drives me at the wall is these books. They just seem like they're a tiny piece of a huge story all the time, month after month after month. And you just go, ah, man, can I get a book where they're just telling stories succinctly and keeping me interested and keeping me wanting to read this stuff? Because I remember being there when when Claremont and Byrne and Austin are killing off Phoenix and 
and it was just you couldn't wait for the next issue you would be so excited about it or when frank miller was on daredevil it was just like holy crap man i i'm super excited to read this next one i you know you would be beside yourself with with enthusiasm for this stuff and it and it seems now that it's too orchestrated and and that clearly people are writing for the trade mm, and yeah. it, and it just becomes like you know it's like i'm reading and i i just read a random issue of batman recently and you open it up and you go okay well some some reason batman's got a a red dot on his bat now and i don't know what that's all about and he's got his mask off and i don't recognize who it is and as far as i know they don't identify who the hell he is and then there's somebody who kind of looks like Bruce Wayne that's in a desert somewhere. And I don't know that it is Bruce Wayne, you know, and there's all these pieces of stuff. But maybe in context, this makes a lot of sense to somebody. But on its own and isolated, it doesn't make a damn bit of sense to me. And you're selling it in this form. <laughs> you know, you put this out on, on purpose and you're shoving it out into the world. And I'm reading it in this form that you have packaged on, on purpose, you know, and it's released on purpose. And I'm getting it and I'm going, I don't I can't make heads or tails of this thing. I don't know what's going on here. And that shouldn't be the case as far as I'm concerned. There should, should at least be a heads up or something. <laughs> like, <laughs> meanwhile, in, I mean, we used to have that. You would have these narrator voices that were telling us just basic stuff. Meanwhile, Bruce is in real deep doo-doo here. And, you know. With, uh, see issue 26 for more. <laughs> yeah, and, it's, and it's cheesy and whatever, but, but there's also something where if you're a 12-year-old kid, you can read it and go, oh, that was damn exciting, and I understand kind of what's going on to a degree. You know, and, and most of the writers were able to kind of fill you in as you went along so that you didn't feel like you were completely lost. Marvel has got those recap pages, and I've always been surprised that DC doesn't do that. I mean, even like, uh, you know, Robert Kirkman over at Skybound is doing the recap pages for his new book, Oblivion Song. And like to me, someone who reads so many comics, I open those up and I know immediately where I left off, even just by the, like a quick reminder. I'd prefer it if people would do it in a, in a way that was, that was a little more organic. Than sure. We didn't have to have that where they could just kind of remind you in the story itself. And cause most of this stuff isn't that complicated. Sure. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. look, here's the good guy. Here's the bad guy. Here's what's at stake. Go. Um, no, I, I get it. I mean, like I started reading in, in the 80s. I mean, the story for Spider-Man was already 290 something issues in. But like I felt like pretty quickly, like I understood Peter and MJ and then that there was this Gwen character and the Osborne, you know, like the way they yeah. kind of weaved it in. You just kind yeah, of I mean, when I out, started you know? re- reading, it was the 70s. But even then it was like Gwen has always been dead. She, yeah. There was never a time when I was reading the book and she was a living character. But you knew she was important. (laughs) But I knew, I knew, oh, he, she died and he failed to, to save her. And he's always whining about it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you kind of just knew that going in. It's like, all right, uncle Ben, he, he bought the farm and uh, he was (laughs) unable to save Gwen and unable to save Gwen's dad. 
and you, and you would get these little reprint books every now and then. So you could go, oh, okay, I get it. This is what's going on. And those were super helpful. So speaking of modern Marvel books, we just got the news about your latest reunion with Marvel and, and Spider-Man. You've got this amazing mm-hmm. Spider-Man going big project coming out in September. Can you tell us about like what this book is? There was a recent uh, one shot with Wolverine that just came out where there was three different stories that were just sort of creators coming back and doing their shtick with, with Wolverine. Um, I don't know if you saw that, mm-hmm. but basically that's what this is. It's just, we got three different creative teams that are coming back and doing something with Spider-Man. So one of the creative teams is me. And <laughs> so <laughs> I wrote and wrote and drew and inked my story there. So it's relatively short. It's a 10 page story and it's just me doing Spider-Man again, writing and drawing Spider-Man and having some fun with it. How did that come about? I know that you've kind of like flirted with the idea on Twitter over the years about coming back and doing a Spider-Man tale, but like what made it actually happen? Made it happen is just an editor reaching out and saying, Hey, you want to do this? And me going, all right. Um, so that was Nick Lowe uh, who contacted me and wanted to know if I'd be interested in doing that. And I may end up doing some more Spider-Man. So, Oh, that that's exciting. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, Can you give us any details on what the story might be about or like the, the re- realm <laughs> in which the story exists? Is it a flashbacky kind of tale or it's kind of now? I mean, he's, he's still, it's got Mary Jane in it and she's got Mary and she's got her same haircut that she's got now, but I'm, but I'm drawing her a little more on, uh, John Romita's model than, than modern, uh, artists seem to, but it was, it was really just do a cool little Spider-Man story. And I just, well, went, all right, well, what's a character that he either hasn't met before or would be fun to play with? So who do you want to draw, basically? And so I kind of approached it like that. And I picked a fairly obscure character who had appeared in Captain America. So I was hoping it would be Savage Dragon. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm not able to, to... rope in any of my own characters at least at least not yet you know i mean I, that would be that would be fun but that's not in the cards right now well speaking to that there was that weird savage dragon cameo in that spider-man team-up book the how are the ducks steve gerber story were you involved in that in any way uh yeah because it crossed over into a uh story on my end on uh we did a one shot that was savage dragon destroy your duck so kind of the idea there was uh, they had Marvel had asked um, Steve about doing a, a more Howard the Duck stuff. And he was down for it. But he got really um, disheartened because suddenly Marvel was like, OK, Howard the Duck is back. So we're going to have somebody else do a Howard the Duck special and somebody else do a Howard the Duck appearance over here. And Steve was very much in the this was this is my baby. How come I don't get to be the only guy who gets to work on my baby? He kind of felt ownership in that character, and that's that's a tough thing when the character is not owned by you. <laughs> and so 
the initial fun idea was, wouldn't it be fun if these characters bumped in the dark and we had sort of an unofficial crossover? Wouldn't that be fun? And so he came to it from that, like, oh, this will be a kind of a fun idea. I can have Destroyer Duck and Howard the Duck kind of meet and have Spider-Man and uh, Savage Dragon kind of meet. This will be a, kind of a fun thing to do. And then he found out that they were doing all these other appearances with Howard the Duck, and he kind of came back to me and said, I don't know if I can do this, man. This is this is terrible what they're doing. They're, they're using all this blah, blah, blah. And so I suggested is why don't instead of us being nice about it, why don't we do an abduction story where you have the character in that basically will we'll abduct uh, Howard the Duck and put him in the witness protection thing and have him. And so kind of then that got him thinking of, oh, how can I do this? And, and what way can we orchestrate this story so that so that I can abduct this character? And he, and he did come up with something. And it was kind of a cool way of doing it. And I think he ended up, I know people were pissed off at me at Marvel uh, <laughs> because of it. But luckily, our story ran late enough that I think a lot of people didn't get the connection. Yeah. That's what had gone on. And, and that, but if you read the two you can get that that's what happened. And it made it so that he could finish the story that he was doing over, over there, which he was struggling with. But this, the idea of it, of it doing an abduction made it so that he could complete it. I've never known anybody who struggles the way that Steve Gerber struggles to write. I've never helped, had to deal with it. That's, that's not my working method. That's not the way I, I operate, but he really just sweated over this stuff. How has it been returning to the character of Spider-Man 30 years later? Is there, is there something you kind of discovered about it being away for that long? It, it's weird to, to jump back into it just because all that muscle memory is still there. So I can come into it and just be like, I know how to draw this guy. This is not a problem at all. I just go right back into it. And it's, like, I know what his webbing looks like. I know what his costume looks like. I, I, I know all these moves. I can do this. And so the, that part of it is has been fun. There are a lot of different approaches I would like to try at some point, just as an experiment. Because like, back in the day, I did a few issues in a row where I just had Spider-Man have the, the black part of his costume was a flat black. Right. And it was like, well, that was kind of an interesting experiment. There's a few other things that be like, I'd like to try this visual or that visual with with his costume or, and play around with it a little bit. There's that great image that you created where it's like just the colors of his suit against the flat black background. Is that what you're describing? Yeah, there's just different stuff. There was a time where um, a short period where Spider-Man had just lost his powers. Right. And uh, in that particular story i for whatever reason just decided i'm just going to make the the blue what is ordinarily the blue part of his costume i just made it flat black like there was no highlights on it at all it's just as a visual thing <laughs> and and it was it's kind of a sort of thing that i think would work better now than it did then because at the time the printing was terrible you know so everything was on newsprint and so when they put a color underneath the black, they just cut out a bigger area of red hmm. because the red part of his him is going to be red anyway. 
And so because of that, what ended up happening is you could see the red through the black a little bit. So he kind of looked like he was red and dark brown instead of red and black. But now just, you know, the printing so much better, and so much sharper that we could we could do a black that actually looked black. And they're just different, different rendering things or I would be like, I could, I could make it this kind of shininess looking or, or that, just trying out different stuff. I know my um, approach on this 10-pager was somewhat different from what I was doing when I was uh, on the book. It would be not, just nice to play around with it, just try different things out. But. Eric, we just wanted to wrap things with a question that we ask all of the creators that we have on our show here, which is, you know, what does it mean to you personally that you were able to contribute to the legacy of the spider-man character <laughs> what does it mean to me i don't yeah. know i don't I, what are what are the possible answers that people because <laughs> that one is like i don't know i don't know i haven't thought about it i mean it's 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 nice to be known for something <laughs> it's nice to have there be some impact and certainly the character has has done me well you know, people come up to me at conventions and have me draw Spider-Man drawings forever, really. And that's that's never stopped. So that's that's nice. But I don't know. I mean, it's kind of up to the audience to decide what they're going to remember and what they're going to forget over the over time. Because sometimes, you know, there's plenty of people who have worked on the book. So it's a, kind of up to the readers to decide whether they what matters to them and what doesn't. And you, you hope to leave some kind of a lasting mark and you do the best so that you do leave some kind of an impression, but it's really up to the audience as to, it's, as to what matters and what doesn't. Well, yeah. uh, well, awesome, Eric. I mean, that's as good an answer as anybody else's, you know, like it's a very subjective question. Well, thanks again for, for joining us today. I hope you had a good time and, um, and I know we enjoyed having you on. All right. Well, it's a pleasure to have been had, I guess. <laughs> All right, Dan, that, that was awesome. I really enjoyed that conversation immensely. <laughs> <laughs> Well, just rereading all of Eric's stuff before we did this interview, I, I really kind of quickly realized how much his books, even just the adjectiveless Spider-Man books, were some of the first comics I ever read. And I'm sure that must be true for you as well. Like Eric's stuff really kind of was the backbone of um, all the stuff that I loved about Spider-Man. I started right with issue 375. But that's about exactly the same time that he was doing the adjectiveless book. So I was buying all of his stuff too. And it was kind of like the first look at comics I ever got. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've talked about it. I, I started on the book and shortly thereafter, Tom McFarlane came on and, you know, Eric Larson followed Todd. And I'm thinking to myself, oh man, why are they taking my favorite artists off the book? But then like Eric came on and brought his own like unique verve to it. My hook continued, you know, <laughs> let's, let's just say, otherwise this would be a completely different podcast, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so thanks again to Eric Larson 
for joining us to talk about his career on Spider-Man. And thank you to you listeners at home for tuning in. Yeah, we hope you all enjoy the show. Dan, what do we have coming up next? Well, Mark, we're going to actually get back on board our regularly scheduled programming, which is never that regularly scheduled, especially in this season three, which we've drawn out. But I mean, man, there's a lot happening in the world of Spider-Man for us to cover. So yeah, expect in a couple weeks time for the next episode. I believe it's episode eight of season three. There we go. Just to stick with us, everyone. Also, for our Patreon subscribers, be sure to check out our Patreon page and your podcast feed this week for a special review of Amazing Spider-Man number 26. And if you aren't a Patreon subscriber, remember, why not join our fun team? Just click on the link on the show notes to check it out. There's no better place to join on the Patreon bandwagon than to join us for our exciting coverage of the Nick Spencer run. Remember, for just $3.99 a month, the price of a new comic, you'll get access to our exclusive new issue reviews, B-book reviews, extended interviews, and more. And for $10 or more a month, you'll get access to some awesome commission artwork this season from Barry Kitson. And I've been told that that artwork is going to be coming in real soon. So if you're a Patreon member, please keep your eye on your mailbox in the coming weeks. I also want to be sure to say, check out our sister show, The Untold Talks of Spider-Man, who are back from a long break But they're back to discuss Grim Hunt, which we actually had recorded before their break, so back when Hunted was going on. But either way, you'll get to hear them talk about the great Grim Hunt story with me as a guest for my first time on that show. So no better time to go and check out the Untold Talks of Spider-Man. Even better that it's me than the times that you've been on that show, Mark. Wow. It's always a competition with you, isn't it, Dan? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it has to be. It has to be. Well, and another note, too, please make sure to check out the amazing Spider Slack. It's our Spider-Man community. It's an app on your phone that lets you talk about Spider-Man. Could there be anything better than that? I don't really think so. So come check it out. There's a link in this episode's description to join that community and get talking about Spider-Man. Mark, if people wanted to keep up with you and talk Spider-Man with you, where might they do that You know, this week? God help them if they want to find me. You can find me on Twitter at ChasingASMblog. And you can also find me and my book, 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die, wherever books are sold. What about you, Dan? Well, very awesome. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at SupSpider. Spider Talk, you know, that's my handle. But um, also, be sure to check out the Spider-Man Minute podcast. Mark, you and I have been both been guests on this show. They invited me back for their third season covering Spider-Man 3, one minute at a time. And I got to talk about that awesome rooftop fight with Harry Osborn from the beginning of the movie where they're chasing after the wedding ring and all of that stuff. So I got to be on a bunch of episodes there and it was a lot of fun uh, joining those guys. So if you haven't checked out that show or you have before, you know, I think I'm like episode 16 to 20. So somewhere in that range, if you want to hear me talk about my feelings about Spider-Man 3, you can go over there to do it. I also wanted to mention this week, for the past few episodes, the show has been edited by someone other than me for the first time, and that is uh, none other than Rick Coast, who is our new editor on the show, and I think deserves mention because he's been doing a lot of hard work behind the scenes, and you don't get to hear his voice, although I admit he's quite a good podcaster himself. Thank you to Rick for kind of taking on some of the work here on the show and helping make Mark and I's time a little bit easier so we can give you even better content than we ever have before. So a thank you to Rick. And on that note, I'll say I actually listened to one of Rick's podcasts this week called The Behemoth that I highly recommend to everybody. It's like a 20 episode story that he wrote and it's beautiful and touching and I can't recommend it 
enough. So yeah, thank you again to Rick. Um, and the thank you and that reminder wouldn't be enough without our famous catchphrase that we end all of our shows on. Mark, what is the heart of Amazing Spider Talk? Of course, that heart and soul is with great podcasts must also come the all new Amazing Spider Talk. Don't, don't miss the next installment.